Today I'll be speaking to Dr. Peter Saint-Ange. He is the Marque Colocatronis Fellow at the Economic Freedom at the Heritage Foundation, also a fellow at the Mises Institute. You're going to hear all about the Austrian school. Former professor at a Taiwan University, I believe it's pronounced Fungia, and uh, before in academia, he worked in uh, corporate strategy in Latin, in Latin America. You can follow him on Twitter at Prof, P-R-O-F-S-T-O-N-G-E, Prof St. Ange, P-R-O-F-S-T-O-N-G-E. Uh, same thing, Twitter, it's at Prof St. Ange. And uh, PeterStAnge.com is the website. So find all his stuff there. He's got some really interesting material he wants to review with us today. Dr. Kelly Victory is with us here as well. And, of course, I'll be watching on the Restreams and the Rumble Rants. Um, and, uh, do you, Susan, do you think we'll have time for calls? We might. Let's, I'll be watching. Uh, we'll be on the Twitter spaces as well. So we'll try to create room for some calls later on after this. Our laws, as it pertains to substances, are draconian and bizarre. The psychopaths start this way. He was an alcoholic. Because of social media and pornography, PTSD, love addiction, fentanyl and heroin, ridiculous. I'm a, I'm a doctor for <laughs> sake. Where the hell do you think I learned that? I'm just saying. You go to treatment before you kill people. I am a clinician. I observe things about these chemicals. Let's just deal with what's real. We used to get these calls on Loveline all the time. Educate adolescents and to prevent and to treat. If you have trouble, you can't stop and you want to help stop it. I can help. I got a lot to say. I got a lot more to say. Thanksgiving is almost here, which means it's time for the best GenuCell sale of the year. Just in time for the holidays, save over 60% off both of our personally tailored GenuCell skincare packages at GenuCell.com Drew so you can look your very best at all of your Thanksgiving gatherings. Look 10, 15, 20 years younger, guaranteed with the best natural skincare anywhere. Take advantage of GenuCell's best sale of the year and say goodbye to fine lines, crow's feet, puffiness, and dark spots. The GenuCell experience is like no other, but don't take my word for it. You will look and feel your absolute best or your money back, no questions asked. So for results in 12 hours or less, GenuCell's immediate effects is included for free. Plus, if you go to GenuCell.com Drew now, you'll get a free upgrade to priority shipping. That is GenuCell.com Drew, G-E-N-U-C-E-L.com Drew. And welcome. Uh, let's get right to it. I want to get to this conversation, uh, Dr. Peter St. Ange. Peter, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me on. So uh, it's interesting. I was listening to some of your podcasts, and you were alluding to the fact that the Austrian school did not seem to be something that people were aware of, which just that surprised me. I understand that academia has been captured by Keynesianism, but I always thought that uh, the Mises Institute and Austrian economics at least deserved a footnote. Had, a, had some of the, You'd have to know it. You'd have to be aware of that point of view. But A, I'll ask you, is, is it really yep. that obscure to people? Oh, it is. Okay. Uh, and B, uh, talk to us for a minute about this, the Austrian school and liberty and freedom. Yeah, I think among... Uh, people who sort of think the way that we do, I think Austrian is really well known. So Bitcoiners, of course, know it. Uh, it's probably the dominant um, version of economics for Bitcoiners. Gold bugs, anybody who understands gold and appreciates why gold has value. People who are skeptical of the government line tend to understand Austrian. Those who 
uh, believe in freedom. But I think for the vast majority of people, uh, they, they've never heard of it, especially older people, right? Younger people have a lot more access to information nowadays. Uh, they often run across it on YouTube or Reddit or something like this. But really, you know, people in their 50s, 60s, 70s, they've generally never heard of Austrian. I went through a undergrad econ program uh, at McGill up in Canada in the 90s. Never once was any, you know, Rothbard, Mises, uh, Hayek was only mentioned for his mainstream points of view. I did not know there was an Austrian school majoring in econ. I stumbled across it in a bookstore somewhere in like 1999 book by Mark Skousen, where he was comparing different schools economics. And I said, wow, what is this thing? This thing is pretty wild. Uh, and that led me down the rabbit hole. And fundamentally, the difference, I think the easiest way to understand the difference between Austrian and sort of mainstream Keynesian is where it got its name, okay, which is that the German-speaking world dominated economics in the 1800s. <clears throat> and Russia. the Prussians, yeah, exactly. Uh, the Prussian government sort of co-opted the field of economics. So they appreciated the propaganda value of economists, right? That they can sell government policies, they can help government figure out how to seize more resources, how to print more money. So the Prussians put their economists on the payroll. The Austrian government did not do that. And so the Austrians were perennially underfunded. Okay, they were poverty stricken. They didn't have those cushy government contracts. Uh, so, whereas the Prussians, you know, they were sort of the intellectual bodyguard of the regime, money just rained down on them. I mean, it, it, it looks like modern American universities, just this torrent of money coming down from government. So that's really what distinguishes the two. So Prussian was imported into the U.S. in the form of Keynesian economics, which really isn't a field of science anymore. It's fundamentally just giving justification for government control, whether it's of spending, of money, of regulation. The punchline to modern mainstream economics is always the government has to make it better, right? The market is failing, companies are failing, individuals are failing, people are too stupid, and so the government has to take over your life and treat you as if you're a pet. The Austrian view, on the other hand, that's the uncorrupted economics. That's the economics that goes back to the scholastics in the 1600s, 500-year tradition. And what's interesting about that tradition is that it doesn't use these reams of statistics. You don't you don't actually need calculus to understand economics. It simply uses realistic models of human behavior. And so there are three key points. One of them is that people do things for reason, like action has purpose. Uh, the second is that people differ from each other. Okay, this is why we bother trading and hiring each other. And the third one is just that leisure is a good. In other words, you will not get out of bed. You will not get up and do something unless it is in your interests. So, for example, uh, you don't have Marxist um, uh, exploitation of labor because, you know, the worker only took the job because they're benefiting from it, uh, just as the company only offered the job because they're benefiting from it. So the point is, everybody benefits from every uh, economic transaction. But note what follows from that, which is that there's nothing for governments to perfect, okay, because people know what they want. They know what's the best strategy in life. They know what things are important to them. And so in that traditional classical or Austrian model, there is no role for government. In fact, government is in the way. Government has nothing to add but making people poorer, taking away opportunities, taking away freedoms. So fundamentally, Austrian, not it doesn't start with freedom. It starts with models of human behavior. But the punchline comes out to freedom. 
Uh, and so I think that's another big reason why governments don't want to fund it. They're not particularly interested in promoting the idea of freedom. They want to promote the idea of control. And libertarians uh, have always found this uh, appealing, I guess. They come at it from a different right. angle, but end up in your sort of thing. Um, I, you know, I do believe there is sort of a hybrid sort of thing out there potentially, but th let me just ask a couple, I want to get some other stuff first before we get into the, what's, what's good and what's not good. Most of my friends that work in finance and economy have a real sense about mob behavior, like the, the behavior of right. large groups of people. I mean, that's what markets are, right? You guys have a sense of that. I of late have been extremely up upset uh about the mob action i i, I kind of predicted it about 15 years ago um i right. my, my personal theory is that mobs become particularly intense when the general population has a lot of unregulated rage and they take it and they they gather in these very gratifying groups where they can focus that rage on a scapegoat a person a group something and now I did not imagine when I came up with these theories about, you know, where that came from in terms of personality construct and whatnot, I did not uh, foresee social media and cancel culture. I did not know that that would be a thing, but our modern day guillotine is, is the cancel culture, really. That's what it is. Uh, and so all this mob behavior and this gratification of, of aggressive impulses mm -hmm. in mobs is deeply disturbing to me. D does it bother you as someone who has watched economics and sort of seeing the general you know hysterias that you know I, I mean i'm sure in your readings you know uh extraordinary mm -hmm. popular delusions and madness of crowds is you know sort of you yeah. have to read that and and uh, also i forget the guy's name the frenchman le bon's book about uh, about mobs because he became obsessed because of the french revolution which i've lately been obsessed with lately lately because i'm trying to understand oh there's le bon uh on, you know what is going on now and what to expect from it so i'm wondering if you have any thoughts yeah i think you're absolutely right to be interested in the french revolution that's probably one of the closest parallels <laughs> to what we're living at the moment unfortunately and you know i think that a lot of market behavior i think um to a certain degree it unfairly gets labeled as sort of mass insanity uh, I think a lot of it is just driven by central banks. So um, central banks, they they make rates too cheap, they make them too high. That very predictably leads to this boom bust. Um, I think to a certain degree, central banks are scapegoating uh, markets for what they themselves have caused. But at the same time, I think that you know there is this very strong um, human instinct to be influenced by those around you. Uh, we have strong preferences for sort of tribal identity. Uh, there's a concept I'm sure you're familiar with it, altruistic punishment, where people punish, they see themselves as good people because they are harming somebody else. And I actually right. did a study of this uh, during my, um, it was actually a big chunk of my dissertation. If you look at political speeches, okay, there's this sort of standard model of democracy where it's, um, you know, sort of trying to buy votes, okay, it's trying to give people good goodies, and if those people like it, then, uh, then they win the election. But if you Chicken actually look at pot. political, it, it, exactly, but what's interesting is that if you actually look at political communication, so speeches, um, you know, the way that politicians frame things, they don't actually frame it as vote for me, and you'll get the good thing. In fact, often they'll frame it as vote for me and I will hurt you for a noble reason. You will be saintly mm. because you have suffered. In other words, they are selling sacrifice 
A uh, famous uh, Austrian corporal in the 1930s did this, of course, very widely. His speeches were all full of all of the horrible things that will happen to you, the audience. It will be difficult. You will bleed. You will starve. And they lapped it up. They loved it because of that altruistic punishment. They could experience this moment of almost saintlyhood because of all that they were going to sacrifice. An iconic version of this is affirmative action. So that is sold to white audiences. It, they do not hide what's happening here, right? What's happening here is that you, the white audience, will lose things, and that will be given to some other group. There is no attempt made to hide it. In fact, they are very, very proud of it. And the audience enjoys the fact, right? They, they, um, they see themselves as moral people because they will suffer for it. That, for me, is extremely concerning. Humans absolutely have that instinct. Uh, if we look at the evil of the world even today, the people who are committing that evil, they do not see themselves as evil. Uh, they, if, if they're ideological movements, they don't even see themselves as, you know, sort of, ha-ha, we're going to get these goodies. They don't. No. They celebrate the sacrifice. Uh, that's, that's part of the package. And unfortunately, voters lap it up. And so my conclusion is that, uh, you know, sort of my takeaway from it is this is why rule of law, specifically the American Constitution, are so incredibly important because voters are not motivated by pure altruism. They're not motivated by love. They're not even motivated primarily by self-interest. They are motivated by punishing the evildoers. Yeah, I, I sort of see some of that, the, the so-called lapping it up, as uh, uh, from a psychological perspective of relieving guilt. Guilt is a very unpleasant yes. feeling, so that relieves them of their guilt. And for those that don't have guilt, it ends up just being a plain old traumatic reenactment. So yeah. uh, I, wanna, I want to uh, ask, a I have so many different questions, and I, uh, I want to get into the parallel economies and the, and the, the uh, zombie economy, uh, which, where you think that's coming. But I, before I do, I want to ask sort of a general question. Uh, Adam Smith, is he uh, an, uh, from the Austrian school? Does he represent the uh, Austrian school at all? He is not an Austrian. He's got a couple of major flaws. One of them is uh, he basically had a Marxist theory of value uh, that, you know, if you put a lot of work into something, then it should be worth, uh, worth more. Um, he's generally, I think, seen more as a standard free marketer. I think broadly speaking, uh, you can split the main modern or um, the main modern schools into Austrian, Chicago, uh, and then Keynesian. And Chicago, you know, tends to be relatively free market. That would be Milton Friedman. Main point of difference with Austrian tends to be about money. So Chicago thinks that we should just have a, a Fed who does better, whereas Austrians think that um, government screws up money uh, always and everywhere. Uh, but yeah, I think Smith is more of an icon of the Chicago school. Um, and then for Austrians, it'd probably be either Mises or Rothbard, who's really uh, the central figure. And, and then my last question before I bring Dr. Victory in here, what's the problem? I mean... What would we do? Well, I know what you're going to say, but isn't it? Uh, isn't there a middle ground where we can still have a lender of last resort? Uh, you certainly can. Um, the question is why you would want to, right? So what's the benefit? Uh, the main reason for having um, a lender of resort, the main reason cited by people who champion it, uh, is that banks can get bigger, they can lend more, uh, you can have more money circulating in the economy, and they allege that this makes the economy grow faster. The thing is that empirically it does not. 
um, when you, if you suddenly increase the amount of money in existence tenfold, you haven't changed the number of real things in existence. Okay, you're just bidding up the price of them. Uh, the money itself doesn't actually create anything useful. And so, if money creation has no purpose, um, you know, if it's just sort of pretty words laid on top of handing out money to cronies, then there's no point in having those risky banks that need bailouts. So, you know, Austrians would generally argue the alternative is that banks should actually be sound. In other words, your money should either be in the vault or it should be like with a certificate of deposit where it's not available on demand. That means you cannot have a bank run, right? So if we had sound banks, you would have the same amount of lending. Uh, you would not have inflation. And, you know, this, we can look back to the last period uh, where, you know, we had constrained uh, money growth. We still had, unfortunately, fractional reserve banking. Um, but the last period of sort of sound money was the late 19th century. And that was really the golden age. It was a golden age for America. It was really the golden age for the entirety of human population. Everything that we call modern was invented from a stretch from about 1870 to 1900, including computers, space flight, pneumatic tubes, in other words, uh, uh, Elon Musk's uh, Hyperloop, uh, electric cars, all of it, magnetism, you name it, all of it invented in this tiny little period where we did have sound money. Ever since then, we've been running on fumes. And since we've really pumped up the uh, money printers and you know inflated the banking system, uh, so the 1970s, things have actually gotten, I think, a lot, uh, well, they have empirically gotten a lot worse. We've had uh, much slower growth. Of course, we have these financial crises now, one after the other. So you could have a lender of last resort that you know has sort of a permanent bailout function, but I have no idea why you would. So I, a, a last last thing for me is you, you mentioned where the French Revolution is something that is uh, uh, similar. Is it really to the present moment? And uh, and I'm sort of looking. I'm worrying about mobs. I'm, it seems to me when I look at 1790 and I look at early 20th century Russia, the circumstances were so much more severe in terms of the distance between the aristocrats and the and the people and the problems the countries were getting into, France in terms of defending the American Revolution and Russia in terms of the First World War. I mean, there was really serious stuff going on. Do you imagine we're going to get into trouble like that? Or is this just a milder version that is sort of reminiscent? And in either case, what do we do about it? Yeah, I think that's sort of the first point there is, um, I agree. I mean, things were obviously much, much worse uh, preceding the Russian Revolution and the French Revolution. I think what's a little bit concerning is that people don't become violent uh, necessarily because things are bad. Empirically, they tend to become violent when things were good and then suddenly turned south. Okay, this was uh, Che Guevara's error. Right. So they tried mm. to promote revolution in Bolivia and they figured, well, Bolivia is much poorer. So, of course, we'll find more fertile ground. No, it turns out Cuba, which was the richest country in Latin America at the time, that was where to go, that people are most fertile when things have been going pretty well for a long time. And then suddenly they turn mm. south. So in that sense, I think that we are very much in fertile ground. At the same time, I think what sort of saves us is that there's about 500 million guns in America in private hands. God bless those patriots. If things get rough, there are a whole lot of good guys who are going to put a stop to it. So I do not think uh, we'll have the kind of um, bloodshed that we had in, in uh, the French Revolution. I think people will stop it before it gets too bad. And I've always thought that having independent states, 50 independent states, is really our strength that way. But you say yes. that's the 10th Amendment. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tease that. 
and say that we'll let, I'll let Dr. Victory get into the 10th Amendment uh, when we get back. Uh, again, we were with Peter St. Ange. You can follow him at Prof, S-T-O-N-G-E, P-R-O-F-S-T-O-N-G-E. Uh, the YouTube is there as well, and then the website is Peter St. Ange, S-T-O-N-G-E dot com. We'll be right back after this. Susan and I have been looking for nutrition-packed, great-tasting greens drink for a while. And then we tried our friends at Paleo Valley's Organic Super Greens, which is superior to what's out there on the market. Our friends at Paleo Valley, well, they think of everything, and they've created what's been called a magical green powerhouse. All three delicious varieties, pure unflavored, strawberry lemonade, and tropical, contain 23 certified organic antioxidant-rich superfoods, including the highest quality spirulina. It's also free of cereal grasses, gluten, grains, soy, and dairy, and no added sugars or artificial sweeteners. And what's more, it delivers digestive enzymes, polyphenols, which are believed to burn fat, and eight essential amino acids. Imagine the time, effort, and cost of trying to make this yourself. It's impossible. Head on over to drdrew.com slash paleovalley, and you will get 15% off your first order. All the great products they have there, 15% off at drdrew.com slash paleo, P-A-L-E-O. I think everyone knows the next medical crisis could be just around the corner, whether it comes in the form of another pandemic or something much more routine like a tick bite. You and your family need to be prepared. That's where the wellness company comes in. You know the wellness company. We have their physicians on like Dr. McCullough frequently. The wellness company and their doctors are medical professionals you can trust. And their new medical emergency kits are the gold standard when it comes to keeping you safe and healthy. It's really, it's a safety net. It's an insurance policy yeah, absolutely. that you hope you're not going to need. But if you need it, you sure as heck are going to wish you had it if you need it. Be ready for anything. This medical emergency kit contains an assortment of life-saving medications, including ivermectin, z -Pak, the medical emergency kit provides a guidebook to aid in the safe use of all these life-saving medications. From anthrax to tick bites to COVID-19, the wellness company's medical emergency kit is exactly what you need to have on hand to be prepared. Rest assured, knowing that you have emergency antibiotics, antivirals, and antiparasitics on hand to help you and your family stay safe from whatever life throws at you next. Go to drdrew.com slash TWC. That is drdrew.com forward slash TWC to get 10% off today. Just click on that link. Some platforms have banned the discussion of controversial topics. If this episode ends here, the rest of the show is available at drdrew.tv. There's nothing in medicine that doesn't boil down to a risk-benefit calculation. It is the mandate public health to consider the impact of any particular mitigation scheme on the entire population. This is uncharted territory, Drew. And Dr. Kelly Victory with us again today. I'm, I hope I haven't stepped on your opening thunder by asking him to speak about the 10th Amendment and how that is going to and how that is the key ingredient in solving all problems. So shall we have him answer that? Go, you can go ahead and start with, I was going to start with something else. So if you want to, you want to um, get to the 10th amendment first, we can do that. Uh, Peter, your thoughts about that? Uh, yeah, I had a uh, July 4th video where I talked about, uh, I talked in glowing terms about the 10th amendment. The 10th amendment, of course, uh, emphasizes that the federal government has delegated powers, that it can only do the things that are literally spelled out in the Constitution. They have driven a truck through that by using a couple of clauses, like the General Welfare Clause, 
Uh, and so at this point, the Tenth Amendment is essentially moot. Uh, but it's it's very clear in writing. Let's see, I think it says uh, the powers not delegated are reserved for the states, comma or for the people. It is written in plain English. When eventually we get a Supreme Court with a spine, uh, and you know if they actually sit down and enforce that Tenth Amendment, almost the entirety of the federal government would disappear overnight. I mean, you're down to like mm-hmm. post offices, the Department of Defense, and an embassy or two. There's almost nothing left. So, you know, Health and Human Services, Department of Labor, uh, Social Security, for that matter, you would have to compensate, of course, the people who paid into it. So you would have an enormous debt that the federal government would have to pay out. Uh, almost the entire thing is unconstitutional. And by the way, one of the powers that is not delegated to the federal government is money. So they are not, they're certainly not allowed to print little scraps of paper or to give a private organization like the Federal Reserve dictatorial control over our economy. Uh, in fact, in the Constitution, the power of uh, controlling money, first of all, it's limited to gold and silver. Secondly, it is delegated to the states, not to the federal government. Right. Uh, so if, now, I don't think we're going to have a Supreme Court with that kind of spine. It would obviously be very disruptive. And unfortunately, historically, judges have sat down and asked not what the Constitution says, but you know what's going to be most disruptive. Uh, but if we actually did at some point either have a Supreme Court who uh, you know, was willing to read the Constitution as written, mm-hmm. uh, or if we had some kind of crisis that focused their minds, uh, then it would be um, thrilling to try to get back to that original vision, in which point a lot of those things would still be done. We, it, you know, there's political pressure for things like Department of Labor, possibly even education. And so, but at least they would be at the state level. And once they're at the state level, it is a lot easier for people to change them. That means that you know people don't feel so beaten down by the, you know, by the system. They're actually uh, they get more involved in reforming or in oversight uh, of those. And then, of course, also each state competes, so the states can look to each other and say, okay, right. who did this? Um, you know, we see that in uh, school choice, for example, where a number of states are just going full bore and allowing parents to choose. Uh, where they want to send their kids, and that then becomes the laboratory of democracy. Other states can see how that how that works out, as opposed to trying to do that at the federal level, which is exceedingly difficult. Really, you need a ton of money, and you've got to be part of the uniparty if you're going to get a hold of that kind of money. And to be to be clear, it's the Tenth Amendment is fundamentally the rationale for overturning Roe v. Wade. Uh, again, it was not an attempt to outlaw or make illegal abortion. It was simply saying this is not something that belongs at the federal level. This is something that was not enumerated in the Constitution and therefore belongs at the the state level. And as you rightly point out, people make decisions to move for all kinds of reasons. They don't like the tax basis or they don't like the school system or they don't like uh, the state's position on abortion, whatever it is. Uh, People can then choose to live where they want. Um, But the 10th Amendment is, is indeed, I think, has been trampled on in many, many ways. Um, yes. I want to start. I want to start to talk lots and lots about the mob mentality thing. Take a little different bite at that apple. But one thing that struck me when you were talking about this concept of altruistic punishment sounded very similar. And I'd like your your thoughts on this. Um, to what Klaus Schwab said uh, recently uh, from the WEF, where he's saying, you know, you will own nothing. You will not be able to travel. You will not eat, you know, you will not choose what you eat, but you will be happy. It sounds very much (laughs) kind of smacks of that altruistic punishment concept that you will fundamentally suffer mercilessly, 
but somehow be right. happy for it. So thoughts on that? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, the, the environmental movement uh, is big on horsehair. You know, um, they're very proud of the suffering. No. Uh, the fact that products cost more, that they're lower quality. Uh, this is a badge of honor. They wear it with pride. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, all of those, uh, but I think it's almost a pattern for totalitarian movements to really celebrate that because totalitarian yeah. movements, they tend to destroy. Uh, they take a, say, a prosperous, happy society and they crush it. And to turn that into almost, almost a fetish, uh, you know, if you sit down with uh, environmentalists, for example, and you explain what the economy would look like if you actually got rid of fossil fuels, you know, had these little toy windmills and whatnot to try to run things, you explain to them that, you know, we would substantially return to the Stone Age. And they, they seem to, to like that. You know, I, I guess they imagine it's going to look like Lord of the Rings with the hobbits and, you know, everything will be copacetic. Right. And, you know, you sort of sit down and explain, you know, the, it, if you sort of look at the Lord of the Rings realistically, like probably one out of five hobbits are dying of starvation. And, right. you know, you, know but, you don't have any yeah. sterilization of medical equipment. And, I mean, life, life is really bad. And indeed, we can see it today because there are parts of the world that are, uh, you know, somewhat along that continuum towards the Stone Age. And life is not pleasant. Uh, you are choosing which child is going to live. Uh, it's not, you know, it's not glamping out in the forest uh, over the weekend. Um, so, you know, but, but still, when you try to explain to these people what kind of sacrifices are involved with their utopias, uh, I really think it's, it's, um, it's almost a point of pride how much it's going to hurt. They are thrilled, right. of course, that it's going to hurt you, but the fact that it hurts them is like bragging rights. No, no, exactly. And so this con I've always been interested in this concept of altruistic uh, punishment. If you think about what was emblazoned uh, as the motto over the concentration camps, and, you know, work will set you free. Uh, it, so, you know, it's the suffering that somehow you will be better for the element of suffering you are about to experience. Anyway, uh, right. let me move on to, I want to talk about the, the mob thing. And you were talking about it on a relatively, as an economist, on a relatively a lofty level, market behavior and how uh, mob behavior impacts markets. I want to get down to a little bit more granular level, given what, in, and what Drew was getting at in terms of, are we looking at potentially uh, violent outbursts and, and rioting and those sorts of things? Um, I was a psychologist before I was a physician, so I, I think I, I have a particular interest in mob mentality and in uh, human behavior. Uh, in my experience, people act in mobs. Mobs are the most terrifying of all things because mm -hmm. the anonymity of the mob allows people to behave in ways that they otherwise wouldn't. That said, is there a way that we can leverage that mob? People, people are frustrated right now. Uh, people are really right. frustrated. And if we are looking down the barrel of, uh, you know, masking mask mandates again or lockdowns, mm -hmm. God forbid, or, you know, if we are on the eve of yet another, quote, pandemic or emergency, you know, how do you see the current frustration level, which is a huge driver of violent outbursts, is is frustration um, more than more than anger, more than anything else. It's just pure frustration. You put you know rats in mm -hmm. a box and you keep making them more and more crowded. They will become violent. Uh, you know it's that's the nature of 
of uh, existence. So how do you see the current level of frustration and mob mentality acting with regard to, say, specifically around the pandemic uh, guidelines and what we're facing in, in that regard? Yeah, I think the most danger, well, it's the most dangerous, but it's also the greatest opportunity is that framing, I think, is really key to this, right? What we saw during COVID was that governments were, uh, I mean, they were really behaving in totalitarian, way, totalitarian ways that we mm -hmm. hadn't seen in centuries. Like, we have not shut down churches, for example, since the 1600s, mm -hmm. right? In 2019, mm -hmm. if somebody suggested that, yeah, we're going to, we're going to ban all church services. You would have thought they were absolutely out of their mind. Uh, mm -hmm. in, in, in a country that's, what, 80% Christian? That's, that's mm -hmm. no way. Mm -hmm. What are you smoking? Um, people went to a place I think none of us uh, expected them to go. And I think a big part of that was the success that media had uh, reinforced by censorship at framing exactly who's doing what. Right. So rather mm -hmm. than the truth, which was that governments were imposing these totalitarian uh, restrictions on all of us. It was the unvaccinated doing it. See, the unvaccinated were forcing us, you know, because they were extending the pandemic, we had to keep these draconian things in. So we don't want to do all these horrible totalitarian things. Trust me, we want nothing, mm -hmm. but we have to. And that sort of framing, I think, is just extraordinarily dangerous. It's very, very important from a psychological uh, point of view to understand that because People are angry. They're angry on both sides. And whether that turns into a force for good or evil, I think 100% depends on whether we're able to frame it. Now, I think the bad guys know that. I think that's exactly why they went directly for the jugular of censorship. If you can mm -hmm. frame things, you can control that mob. In fact, you can do it on a micro level. We saw it during the rent the mobs with BLM. Yeah, I mean, it's just amazing, the surgical right. precision. It's almost like a laser pointer. Okay, we're going to need you to go there and do this. It's amazing how you can control them if you control the framing, which is why I think people like, uh, I mean, all of us here agree that free speech is arguably the single most is uh, important issue. If we lose that, we lose the entire thing because they will turn even our allies against us. Yeah, if you, if you look at the theory of mass formation psychosis, uh, which we've talked about quite a bit, it really begins with identifying and elevating a common enemy. In this case, either the yeah. first it was the virus, and then it became the unvaccinated. Same thing happened during right. Nazi Germany. They elevated a common enemy, the Jews. They are well, responsible but they, for they all also, of your bad feeling. The, but but remember, they, they emphasized in Germany the, the dirtiness. So it really is, the entire paradigm is that of infectivity. It's an infectious, it's, it's triggering fear right. and disgust, which are extremely exactly. powerful emotions. Right. So, so you elevate a common, you know, a common focus for your dissatisfaction in life, your, your unhappiness, you know, whether it's the virus or the unmasked or the unvaccinated or the Jews or whatever it is, and that that is how you rally. And the only way you can do that is by controlling the narrative entirely by propaganda. And in this case now in 2022, 23, you know, is about censorship and being able to shut down anybody who would dare to say, no, 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 that's actually not, that that's not true, um, because you need that common enemy uh, for people to focus on. So go from there. So I, I agree with that's you. So the they scapegoat. did that very successfully, the scapegoat.
Yeah. Yeah. And then I think that the most effective way to counter that, you know, it's a message I promote, a message uh, Tucker often promotes, uh, is that we, we d like, we don't have problems between us, the people, right, left. We all want the same things. We want safe streets. We want kids who have bright futures, want prosperity, we want happiness. Um, we actually want the same things, right? So highlighting that this is an elite, this is a power versus the people thing. So we are trying to unite the people, ideally mm -hmm. to take power mm -hmm. away from the elite, right? To try to back them off, to try to hog up more space uh, to give to the people because, you know, I think that message is effective. I think it's actually true. You know, if you go into small towns, you might have people who vote Democrat and Republican. If they're not talking politics, they're perfectly, you know, they're they're joking around, giving each other right. a hard time, teasing each other. They're having a good old time. It It is really not one group over the other. Uh, so, right, you know, sort of naming exactly what the strategy is and trying to arm people to be aware of how they're trying to manipulate us to fight each other. I'd love to hear yeah, your I thoughts on. Go ahead, Drew. I was just saying, I, I, I think that's a, we all would, I, I, it's interesting to me that I don't, I don't understand how anybody could disagree with that, 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 uh, the, this yeah. whole phenomena. And, you know, I was reading a book recently, I forget the name of it, but he was making the case that, you know, a top heavy elite is the, one of the most serious threats to any society. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, they, once they get past a certain scale, it seems like they actually accelerate in their growth. Um, we're seeing that now. We see it in, you know, let's say individual states. So like the larger the state, the uh, uh, more intrusive tends to be the government. Um, there's a certain critical mass where the elite just like they start reproducing like bunnies. I mean, they just and, you know, the key there again is framing. So like getting people to understand what are these people taking from you? Now, a lot of that um, can be hidden, right? It can be hidden by deficit spending, uh, which is itself funded by, um, by central banks. So that's part of the reasons that I'm so interested in central banks is that, in a sense, you know, Jerome Powell's money printers are a battery that fuels this entire thing. Uh, it keeps Leviathan running. It allows Leviathan to grow um, while hiding the costs to the people who are losing their power or their money. Uh, it's, I've likened it to a venture capitalist, okay? So basically the Fed funds the government over the period where it needs to grow. So let's take COVID, for example. Uh, they pumped out about $6 trillion and nobody had to pay that in taxes, okay? Like uh, they didn't go to billionaires and tell them, you know, you know, we're gonna seize half your money. I'm sorry, you know, the pandemic made us do it. No, it was completely invisible to voters. And in fact, in voters... A lot of voters got a raise, right? They got uh, paid more money to go sit on the couch, which is you know very mm -hmm. appealing to a certain category of voters, and that got support for the lockdowns over fifty-one percent. But the point of it is that the Fed effectively acts as this venture capitalist, where it hides all the costs. It basically floats all those startup costs until the growth in government can metastasize, generate its own little crony industry, and at at that point, whether it's the military-industrial complex or the uh, vaccine industrial complex, those cronies are then able to sustain it and keep that sucker going. So, um, you know, you end up where as obscure as it might seem uh, to be, uh, you know, talking about the Fed when we're talking about the growth of government, fundamentally that funds the whole thing. The parallel economy has empowered us to care for our health, well-being, as well as longevity. 
Likewise, for us pet parents who now have a place to go when it comes to keeping the family dogs, cats, even horses in the best shape possible. As a dog dad, I'm thrilled to be working with Pet Club 24-7, a company founded by two guys who lost dogs to serious conditions, including cancer. Pet Club 24-7 has an incredible array of products, including a line of supplements for humans, such as the Inforce Plus Corollius Versicolor and Inforce Corollius Versicolor with Reishi. My friend and colleague, Christina Ferrari, a cancer survivor herself, swears by it. When I was diagnosed, the doctor in the emergency room told me, you have two years to live. Oh, boy. Along with the stem cell, I took these. I have been in remission for eight years now. For dogs, mush puppy treats are a fan favorite. Rex, oh, boy. Oh, he came right. Oh, there he is. They are also made with the Coriolis Versicolor Mushroom, which supports their immune system, according to hundreds of clinical studies. Here's Kristen Ludlow, National Vice President. That strain does matter. We do have the most potent strain, and we also extract it in a proprietary way. And that's why we've been having such wonderful experiences with these products. Mush puppies are made here in the U.S. There are no fillers. It's not addicting. Your dog can't accidentally overdose. Go to drdrew.com slash petclub247 for a discount off the list price. That is drdrew.com. P-E-T-C-L-U-B-247, Pet Club 247. All right. I, 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 I interrupted yeah, you. Yeah, and yeah. I'm trying to think of, no, no, that's okay. I was well, think about it. I've got, I've else? got something else while you're, while you're thinking, if you want. I just want a quick question, which okay. is um, you, you, you seem to have intentionally used the word Leviathan, and so my, I just have a, just a sort of a sidebar question, which is, is was Hobbes onto something? Uh, well, so my understanding of Hobbes is that, uh, the Leviathan is supposed to stop us from fighting from each other. And one of the, one of the things, you know, I think, right. And, you know, I think historically the Leviathan has been far, far more dangerous. Um, my sort of standard, I think, frame on this kind of thing is the one that I use for the second amendment, which is that there are many, many more good guys than there are bad guys. And so I like a decentralized society. You know, like, for example, um, it, it, when people talk about the prospect of like government collapsing and you know people sort of having to self-organize, in that kind of context, I can guarantee you there will be no crime whatsoever. All right, the, because there are so many good guys. Um, you know, when you watch it in the Hollywood movies, which are of course written by left wingers, you always have the criminals getting their pickup truck or you know whatever they. They go out in a convoy and they victimize all the people. That's not how it works in the real world. Uh, in the real world, the once the government is out of the picture, the good guys clean house. Uh, generally, it is common knowledge who are the bad guys. Uh, so they clean them up. And, you know, the vast majority of people do not live by criminality. And society gets real quick in a jiff. Uh, this has been happening in El Salvador, for example. So they... You know, it was it was common knowledge who the bad guys are. In fact, often they helpfully covered themselves in head to toe tattoos. Uh, they cleaned it up, and El Salvador went from one of the most dangerous countries in the world to one of the least. Now, in that case, it was El Salvador, but fortunately, we in the U.S., because of this beautiful Second Amendment, we actually have the ability uh, to, uh, I think, run society certainly much more peacefully and much safer uh, than even uh, how it's run today. Uh, with all of the resources that government puts on it. Um, a couple of years ago, I was in West Virginia and we were uh, in sort of a country store and we're kind of guys 
couple of guys who drove in and they had the music playing real loud and uh, kind of created the impression that, you know, they were sort of strutting in their normal life and sort of um, tough guys. And when they came in here, though, they turned the music down. They very politely, they were walking through the store. Excuse me, sir. Why? Because an armed society is a polite society. So okay. I, I, I appreciate that, you know, if you're in the middle of a civil war already, uh, which I think generally happens because, um, because the government lets it fester, uh, in that context, yes, there may be a place for government um, to go through and uh, tamp things down. But in terms of like, how would society run without the you know strong hand of government? Uh, I I think empirically, uh, we would actually have a much safer society. Uh, we saw that in the Wild West, where you know murder murder was almost unheard of. Uh, if you had you know you've got all these famous cases of murders from the 1800s, where I don't know you'll have like. Uh, maybe a teenager who killed their parents or something. And this was sensational all across the country because it almost never happened. Today, it's inconceivable that some teenager who killed their parents would be nationwide news for years on end. They would sing songs about it. It was so incredibly rare. I, I'm going to submit to you at least my impression. You can tell me if you think I'm naive, and perhaps I am. Um, I'm a huge Second Amendment uh, person, and and I I think it's absolutely what has kept us um, out of harm's way so far, and, and it separates us from places like Australia, where the government can absolutely run roughshod over the people. Um, but I also think that the other thing that's very important that keeps societies under control is faith. Is is a is yes. religion and th the attempts to eradicate that from our society, I think, has had profound effects. Uh, when people do not have a strong connection to a church uh, of any sort, whatever that church is, this is agnostic to to, to what particular religion. Um, but without that, without a uh, sort of the presence of a sense of God or of, of religion, and that sense of morality, societies fall apart. And, and I think it is really, people tend to behave well because they have uh, that, that sense of godliness around them. Uh, am, am I a fool? Am I naive it's, that it's only guns and that religion doesn't play a role? No, uh, I think you're absolutely right. And governments, you know, from the beginning of the growth of government, they've sought to really replace two things. Um, which are faith and family. Uh, mm -hmm. You could argue community as well. Um, you know, they go directly for the cement that holds everything together. And they do that because these are such important functions. Uh, they want to make themselves necessary. They want to take sort of the commanding heights uh, of society. But without a doubt, you know, if you look at uh, progressivism, for example, I mean, its origins are actually literally religious. Uh, it's essentially the... Mm -hmm the uh, millenarial eschaton, but they've, they've pulled out Jesus Christ and said they put in like your face here for whatever random dictator. <laughs> uh, it is literally a religious movement. Um, and then, you know, if you look at things like, uh, like environmentalists, uh, mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's very much, you know, we have the original sin. Um, privilege is mm -hmm. the same thing. So, you know, we are all sinners. We must repent for our uh, make up for that. Um, really, you know, modern ideology explicitly uh, takes over the function of religion. Unfortunately, it turns mm -hmm. it to very, mm -hmm. um, you know, often evil ends. Um, religions tend to be pro-social. They tend to promote uh, community and harmony, uh, mm -hmm. living in peace. Mm -hmm. 
whereas modern, you know, these ideologies, I think, are uh, overly built on that altruistic punishment, on that um, going after the enemies. They're, they're um, sort of very aggressive religions. Uh, and then, of course, they're going after families. So, you know, I think that's a big part of right. this whole gender uh, game that we're playing here, where, you know, we're essentially trying to race woman as a concept so that everybody mm -hmm. can become a comrade. And I think the end game on that is fundamentally to demote um, parents, to demote the concept of a family. The idea is to leave people sort of in this atomistic society where they're all alone uh, and only government can come and save them. And, you know, it, it really, it looks like a mass formation of a cult, right? Where you're trying to isolate people from everything they believe in, everybody who's close to them, uh, and then you bring them into the cult as these completely dependent automatons. Uh, so I think that's very much where they're going with this. And, you know, indeed, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you guys are familiar with the numbers about uh, the degree of mental illness among young people, uh, the percent, especially of young women who are depressed is, mm -hmm. I mean, they're at ridiculous numbers. The, uh, given how wealthy our society is and how relatively comfortable our lives are, uh, it's absurd to be dealing with that level of, um, of depression and, you know, sort of people who feel like there's no, no purpose in life that, um, looking to others for, for leadership like sheep. Yeah. Well, I can tell you as a physician, the, the three classes of drugs most commonly prescribed in the United States are statin drugs for high cholesterol, followed very closely by antidepressants and sleep aids. And for a country that is as yeah. wealthy uh, and successful as we are, the idea that we're a bunch of uh, depressed insomniacs um, is is yeah. somewhat <laughs> concerning. You know, who eat fast food uh, and and therefore have high cholesterol is really somewhat concerning. I wanted to ask you about what I perceive as a cultural phenomenon to the United States. I've traveled much of the world, and I haven't seen this elsewhere, which is our reliance on uh, the idea of celebrities, people who have no no knowledge base in in the industry or the subject matter in which they are opining having holding huge sway and really impacting human behavior i don't know if this happens elsewhere or if it happens in in economic or you know in markets uh, which you watch as an economist but i give you for example today you know i we've got martha stewart and pink uh, opining about the need for you to get your latest COVID booster. Now, I turn to Martha Stewart a lot, generally for a pecan pie recipe, not for her, uh, <laughs> you know, her uh, advice <laughs> on what vaccine I want, you know, should take. What is that? And is that something that, you know, culturally, we rely on sports figures and, and, you know, these social media influencers, wherever the hell that is, I should have signed up for that job instead of going to medical school. But, you know, these, we rely on people whose, whose, you know, experience and education has nothing to do with the thing in which they are opining. Um, is that something you've seen in the, in the economic side? Yeah, unfortunately, I think that is universal. Um, I grew up partly in Japan, and certainly people do that there. Uh, if somebody is okay. you know, eating a particular diet, for example, it has uh, a huge amount of influence. And of course, these are not nutritionists. These are not people who are trained in <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> whatsoever. Um, I think it is. I think that the sort of bright side to it is that you know media in the U.S. was very monopolized for the past century, right? So ever since mm -hmm. really the beginning of the radio, you had sort of this winner-take-all where you had just a couple of celebrities. And that meant that it gave a lot of power fundamentally to a very small cabal, generally 
you know, um, a very well-funded uh, cabal of, of, uh, of big companies to influence through marketing and whatnot um, how people behave. Of course, it gave a huge amount of influence to governments who controlled the licenses of those companies to broadcast. Mm -hmm. um, so in a sense, I think that we've actually seen the, the worst of it already. Uh, I think the internet massively democratized that. Social media influences are goofy, but our side has, uh, we can sort of fight on an evil or on an even footing um, in that space. Okay. Like there are a lot of influencers on our side. You've got, oh, I don't know. You've got the guy out in Australia who builds his own house out of, you know, he just digs out uh, stuff right. out of the ground. Um, you've got a lot of uh, raw food people who, you know, they might do like a YouTube channel about, uh, about their mm -hmm. diets or um, unschoolers who, you know, again, do YouTube and they influence people. So yes, on the one hand, it's sort of embarrassing that humans do do that. Uh, on the other hand, I think that things are getting better. We actually, we've actually got an alternative now. It's not just one point of view, but yeah, we've got many. Is that is that you also know, I, the source for the so-called parallel economies that you've uh, mentioned in the past? Is that is that where yeah, that's, that's coming from, point. or that's where the opportunity? Yeah, yeah, yeah I think for sure it is. Um, you know, a lot of people since big business sort of tore off the mask over the past couple of years and sort of turned on their customers. Uh, there are a lot of people now who I think are very willing, they're eager to give their money to somebody who does not hate them, right? So we've seen mm -hmm. a lot of, mm -hmm. you know, generally um, our side doesn't have the kind of financing or necessarily, uh, you know, the kind of business background. So a lot of people on our side who've gotten into that have sort of started small. Um, but the customer reaction from what I've heard has been exceptional. Um, I, I think there's a massive untapped market there uh, that people are just starting to get into. I, I see the clock is winding down, and I want to ask you about something uh, you posted um, not you know some time ago about some things related to the WHO. I talk a lot about the WHO, which I re reference as the long arm of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, we yes. clearly we've tried to highlight um, the relationship between the WEF and the WHO, which WHO in my mind has nothing to do with health and everything to do with control. We've talked a lot yes. about this impending uh, modifications or amendments to existing, um, you know, to existing uh, constructs within the WHO and what we may be looking at if they actually take over the, you know, this, what people are referencing as the pandemic treaty. It's not a treaty at all, but it would s essentially cede control of our own constitution or, or to the WHO in times of something that they deem to be a public health crisis. To, you know, give me some thoughts of yours on the WHO, what you think about them, where this is going. Yeah, I think your take is absolutely correct. Um, the entire galaxy of international organizations from the UN, World Bank, IMF, um, BIS, uh, you know, you've got this whole alphabet soup and all of these things, they are working against us. The uh, Chinese Communist Party has immense influences uh, in these organizations. Um, I post on TikTok. I repost my videos over there. And the only videos that get censored are either where I'm criticizing the Chinese government, which I do often, or if I'm criticizing the IMF and the UN, which is weird. Interesting. Why would that be? Yeah. Right? Uh, I, I think without a doubt, these organizations, um, China views them as an opportunity to spread their influence and uh, to get control over 
uh, the West, particularly the United States, who they see as their greatest competitor. And, you know, I struggle to think of anything useful the UN has ever done for the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, I suppose mm -hmm. the closest you could come is it gave us cover for wars that I wish we had never started. Um, right. And other than that, it's, you know, they, they come out with socialist uh, proposals, these treaties to try to lock us into, you know, attacking the Second Amendment, attacking, of course, our medical freedoms. So without a doubt, it would be wonderful if we got out of them. Uh, speaking as an economist, there is no benefit. They are siphons from the American taxpayer. Generally, they go to either bail out dictators uh, or to try to bribe countries to, you know, get on the U.S. side when there's some U.N. vote, uh, generally about some other war. Um, it, it, they're essentially turning Americans into, um, uh, you know, sort of... Um, you can just squeeze us, or I guess vending machines would be it, uh, for wars. And I mean, I, I'd say there's absolutely no benefit to even being in these organizations. Well, well, speaking of giving us cover, you know, the UN giving us cover, as you put it, uh, for wars that we should never have started in the first place, that's how I see the WHO. They're providing uh, culpable deniability yes. to our Congress and everybody else for saying, oh, we didn't mandate the vaccines. You know, it was the exactly. WHO or we didn't mandate the lockdown. We didn't mandate this thing that was a complete and total debacle. It was the WHO. Uh, and so we are essentially ceding control to an unelected, unaccountable NGO. Right. You know, that 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 is, right. you know, pulling pulling the strings. It, it's horrifying. Um, and do you you know, do you think that we are likely where do you think this is going to go with the WHO? Uh, I think, it, you know, the question is whether we get a real maverick in at some point uh, as president and whether they can get Congress to go along with defunding them or pulling out of them. Uh, I was very pleasantly surprised with Trump's uh, hostility towards the international organizations. Uh, I was also surprised with his hostility towards the never-ending wars of the Uniparty. Um, I didn't expect to, to, to see a president saying those kinds of things in my lifetime. Um, so if we can either get Mr. Trump back in office or somebody who is similarly hostile to these organizations, then you know I, I, I dream that someday perhaps we can pull out of them. But as you say, these things are staffed. They're staffed by socialists. They're staffed um, by, you know, essentially crony appointees from the many dictatorships who dominate uh, the United Nations. Uh, the, these are these are hostile organizations. Uh, right. There is nothing good um, that can come out of these people. When you watch, you know, something else that I'm very aware of is the amount of uh, the amount physically of the United States that is owned by places like China. And when I mean that, I'm saying actual real estate land, uh, the right. acres of this country, um, the, you know, the number of uh, sports teams, for example, the number of NBA teams or foot, you know, National Football League teams that are owned in part or in whole by the Chinese government. As an economist, right. you know, touch on some of that. The, I think your average American, I hate to say it, you know, has no idea the tentacles, how far already the tentacles of the CCP go into the very fabric of the United States. Yeah, so um, we had a similar situation with Japan in the 1980s where, you know, they were, um, uh, they were accumulating a lot more dollars uh, than they were um, using to buy products from us. And so they plowed a lot of that into buying up U.S. assets. Now, generally, the Japanese got their butts handed to them. 
so from an American perspective, that was good fun. You know, they basically bought things at three times what they were worth, uh, lost their shirts, <laughs> and then uh, went went home with lighter wallets. Um, what I, I think some of that is doubtless going to happen with the Chinese. Uh, but at the same time, I think that, as you point out, there's a certain tactical aspect to some mm-hmm. of these Chinese investments where they will buy points of leverage. You know, so, for example, buying a sports team, if a Japanese company is buying a sports team, I think it's safe to say they probably don't know what they're doing. They're going to lose their shirts. If a Chinese company are doing that, I think you have to be a lot more uh, sort of careful there uh, because the CCP has been very uh, smart about converting uh, its investments into actual leverage, you know, so controlling, for example, what what uh, the NBA can say about different Chinese topics, right. potentially uh, about other U.S. topics. Um, by the way, I just want to say that uh, we on the Twitter spaces, if people want to ask questions of uh, Dr. St. Ange, you just raise your hand there and I'll bring you up to the podium. And uh, a reminder for those of you interested in the World Health Organization topic, we're going to get an update tomorrow at 3 o'clock Pacific from Michelle Bachman, who has been the only person I'm aware of raising alarm with the uh, congressional leaders. And she would, last time she was telling us she was having a hard time getting any attention. I think Mm -hmm. I'm hoping Mm -hmm. that has changed a little bit because people seem more aware of this these days. Were you taking, are you taking calls? Is that true? Uh, Well, I'm just telling people to raise their hand if they're interested, but you, you keep going. I'm just saying we're just queue them up. If there are anybody interested in asking questions, go ahead. Yeah, well, I, I'm watching the clock. Why not? I just want to make sure that I give you, Peter, yeah. what other things, you know, what um, you covered a broad range of topics. What else would you like to get out there? I do. For for better or worse, uh, the clowns keep coming up with new topics. Um, so it is, it, it is very, very easy finding new things to talk about. Um, one thing that I did want to make sure that we talked about a little bit is uh, CBDCs and banking. Um, right. So... You know, the world that we live in, uh, we saw this certainly with the Canadian truckers, that the banking system is already part of the surveillance and control state. Um, Mm -hmm. Your money uh, is fundamentally under their control. If the government doesn't want you to have the money, or if they want you to um, send it somewhere else, uh, they're just going to go ahead and take it. They're going to block it. They're going to do what they want. CBDCs would extend that kind of Canadian trucker type control over all of the money. Uh, I think those are extraordinarily dangerous. Um, they're they're very likely to come in. Uh, I, if I had to guess, they're going to pair it with the universal basic income, uh, sort of the bread and the bread and circuses. Uh, if you put that in as a combo and you say, you know, yeah, we need the CBDC so that we can automatically deposit your UBI, that is going to be a winning combination. We already saw that uh, platform <laughs> work during uh, COVID with the stimulus checks to stay home. Uh, So I'm very concerned that we're going to see that kind of thing. There are a lot of people who are going to say, well, I'm not going to use the CBDC. I'm just going to use cash. Uh, Of course, they will force you. Um, You know, I was just talking to an Israeli journalist today. Uh, They're rolling out a CBDC. The Israeli people do not want it. But, you know, of course, these things keep coming out despite what the people want. Uh, So in Israel, they're going to pay government workers with the CBDC. And that's about half the population. Uh, And then they're also going to put all government benefits online. So if you want to collect your free government money, then, of course, you have to download the CBDC. You have to learn how to use it. Mm -hmm. And then they can use a thousand little sort of nudges. So in this country, for example, if your business takes too much cash, okay, then the IRS Mm -hmm. will regard that as suspicious. And then they'll start doing audits on you. So what happens? Well, a lot of businesses say, well, no, thanks. Okay, no, no, people got to use credit cards. 
Now, you know, this may be a fill-up to the um, uh, credit card industry. Uh, no doubt the IRS loves being able to, to track where all the money goes. But think how easy it would be if they want to push the CBDC and people are holding out. They have an enormous amount of power to just kind of use these little nudges to push people <laughs> into a CBDC. Once you have that, effectively, it's like the government can just sit there with a giant spreadsheet and decide who has what money. I mean, they, they can literally just sit there and pass amounts around at will. It is no longer your money. It's more like you've got, uh, you're on a giant spreadsheet that the government owns. Right. And, and I go back now, I put back on my disaster preparedness and response hat. That's, that's my specialty. I done done some modeling with the military on what would happen, for example, if there were a strike on the electrical grid. And I look at this as a very similar thing. If they were, uh, the powers that be, were to change the way that we can use cash, for example, overnight, when you do the modeling of how long it takes for the wheels to fall off the proverbial bus socially, if we were to have a strike right. on the electrical grid or a lockdown of the banks or a messing, you know, we will no longer accept mm -hmm. cash. It's about right. 16 to 18 hours hours yeah. before society falls apart and people who can't get something start coming to your house to get it. So the question is and, the, the concept, yeah. the risk of real social unrest. So I want you to you know, re react to that. I think you're absolutely right. And we've seen that um, in Hurricane Katrina, for example, mm -hmm. uh, it, yes. very, very quickly things fall apart. You had police officers who they just walked away from the job and they went and looted stores mm -hmm. instead so that they could mm -hmm. bring a food home to their family. Mm -hmm. Things collapsed mm -hmm. breathtakingly fast. Very I quickly. think there was a time, there was a time in this country that we could have coped with that kind of thing because people knew each other. Right? And so things mm -hmm. would keep functioning essentially on credit. Uh, but, you know, for people who live in a city or a large suburb, which is the majority mm -hmm. of Americans, that, that is not how the world works. You try going down to the store and doing things on credit. You know, you just say, I'll pay you back next week. It's not going to work. So, yeah, I think absolutely we are, um, we're sort of being too clever here. Uh, we're being too fancy and, you know, we're putting too many essential things on. We're making them reliant on very complicated systems such as uh, the internet. And, you know, certainly when you're talking about money, that's the kind of thing. It doesn't need to be completely online. There's no reason except for wanting the government to have more control uh, why you would want to get rid of physical cash. Physical cash has been around for a very, very long time, millennia, uh, and it's worked perfectly. And government getting rid of it is, once again, you know, government whose their alleged job is to uh, stop crises and to fix crises when they occur. But here, like in so many other areas, it seems like the government is actually the one creating the crisis. I think, yeah, uh, and it's Peter interesting because one of the days of uh, George Bailey. George Bailey? It's a Wonderful Life. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I do. I absolutely do. Yes. I, look, banks are fine, um, you know, as long as everybody understands what the score is. And, uh, yeah, but, yes, I would. I have a strong preference for cash uh, over credit. I like that kind of society. Things worked. Um, you know, we, we had economic growth. We had all the good things, and we didn't have a lot of the problems we have today.
Well, and one of one of the longstanding, you know, uh, tips for telling people how to prepare for a crisis of any sort is generally they are recommended to have a, some amount of cash on hand. Make sure that because if, for example, there was a strike on the electrical grid. Uh, all the ATMs will be, you know, will, will not function because they, uh, all of the gas pumps will not function. They are all powered by, so if I tell people, don't let your car get below, a, you know, half gallon of, of gas because you are going to be in a heap of trouble if you can't fill it up at the station. Keep some cash on hand oh. because the ATMs may My stop OCD functioning. OCD is going to kick in for real now. But I'm telling you, but if cash no longer, if they've, if, if you can no longer use cash, then that doesn't work. And that means that the government holds all of the control. And that is not where we want to be. Absolutely. Right. On the individual level, um, you know, you have those sort of uh, crisis scenarios where people are left out in the cold. Uh, and then sort of on the meta level, you know, like what are they centralizing it for? Mm -hmm. Right. So once they can see everything you're spending and control everything you're spending, well, if we look at what they did with control of speech, uh, you know, you look at how uh, they do IRS audits of um, right-wing organizations, even, you know, organizations fighting for life, for example. Uh, it, it's once you give them a power, they absolutely will abuse yeah. it. So the prospect that the government is going to get this ability to, like, a, just to, to look right into your wallet to see every single thing you spent. Uh, if you bought a gun, perhaps they'll want to visit you and just make sure everything's okay. I mean, you can just, this will absolutely yeah. be abused. Absolutely. Well, last thoughts, Drew. Guys, We're up we against are, the, yeah, the clock. Yeah, we are. We are against the clock. And uh, Dr. St. Andre has been very kind to uh, uh, to give us the time he has so far. And Kelly, thank you for driving the ship here. It's been a really interesting conversation. These are topics that fascinate me. Uh, yeah. You know, it, and I'm, I'm glad Kelly, you were here to discuss it with your psychological background. I, I, we are in something here, you know, and I, as always, history is very difficult to interpret until it's looked at in the past. Really, some would say until we've all died off and somebody who wasn't actually here is looking at all this objectively to understand what happened. But the idea, I like, I like you know, so we, we rarely get to talk about solution and the idea that mm -hmm. uh, the elite is really the problem and that the rest of us really want to get along that's a very powerful yeah. message, and, and I think yeah, it's kind of shifting a little bit in that in that direction. Peter, you seem to want to say something. Yeah, I was going to say, and yes, I absolutely agree with what you're saying. And I think that a key point here is that um, people get sort of down on our prospects. And I think, honestly, uh, we are in a very, very good situation. We are going to win. By we, I mean the regular people. Uh, if you compare to... Um, these kinds of challenges in the past, we have so many assets we didn't have. Uh, you know, we have the U.S. Constitution, which is an absolute roadmap to liberty. Uh, we have hundreds of millions of Americans who believe in freedom, who, you know, passionately um, uh, are willing to fight for it. Uh, and we have the Internet, which I know it's censored. I know it's imperfect. They put their finger on the scale all the time. But, you know, Murray Rothbard talked about in the 1970s, you could get the entire liberty movement in America into a single living room in New York. Okay, that was it. Mm. You talk about it today. I mean, we have hundreds of millions of people uh, in America, in Europe, all over the world who are interested in liberty, who want, you know, to, uh, to shrink the government, to expand uh, the scope for the people who are, you know, want to learn about these topics, want to understand what they can do. 
the the human population is activated like it has never been before. And because of the internet, we can communicate, spread the message, coordinate. I think we're going to have a very difficult five or 10 years here. I think there's no doubt. Mm -hmm. uh, but in the long run, I am very optimistic that we are going to win. Let's leave it From at that. From your lips to God's say, ears. No, thank, <laughs> That's thank awesome. Thank you so much. And thank you, Kelly. And uh, I will let you both go. Thank you so much. And let's, uh, Caleb, uh, throw up the, uh, the schedule coming up. I know we have Michelle Bachman coming in tomorrow. Joe Allen on the 20th with Dr. Victory back with us. Aaron Cariotti coming in here on the 21st. Should be very interesting. Dr. Victory is going to join us for that as well. And I'm just hearing we're going to have Jennifer Say. I believe she was from Levi. Is that where she got famous? And uh, ahead of that, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, which should be interesting. So stay with us. Keep watching for uh, what sign up at Dr.TV. Caleb, anything uh, before I sign out, anything you would like to announce or uh, share with people? Um, I have not been on camera this week because I've gotten almost no sleep thanks to the new baby. So <laughs> you can hear my voice, but you cannot That's see good. me right now. <laughs> She's getting That's better. Uh, oh yeah. She's good. Uh, and I think we've got some, and is, are there other than going to doctor.com, doctor.tv, is there anywhere else we should be sending people to, uh, we have a new channel at, it's a new channel at kick.com slash Dr. Drew. They uh, helped us get the channel. Mm. So if they want to go to, if anyone, you know, watches shows on kick, they can go there, but everything else is at drdrew.com. All the podcasts, all the shows they're up right now. And we do, uh, in terms of these parallel economy ideas, uh, please do support the people that support us. They, they are wonderful. We have wonderful partners. They have great products. Um, watch for no new new kits coming from TWC. I'm organizing things that uh, with them that I think are, could make a big difference. Um, you know, keep an eye out for all the things that we that support us here. Please do. And we'll see you tomorrow at three o'clock with Michelle Bachman. Ask Dr. Drew is produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. As a reminder, the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is intended for educational and informational purposes only. I am a licensed physician, but I am not a replacement for your personal doctor and I am not practicing medicine here. Always remember that our understanding of medicine and science is constantly evolving. Though my opinion is based on the information that is available to me today, some of the contents of this show could be outdated in the future. Be sure to check with trusted resources in case any of the information has been updated since this was published. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, don't call me, call 911. If you're feeling hopeless or suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. You can find more of my recommended organizations and helpful resources at drdrew.com help. Mm -hmm.